Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, and I am here in Macomb, Illinois. Oh, just enjoying these lazy days of summer. We have a great show for you today. We are going to be talking about sustainable landscaping, and of course, you know I can't do this by myself, folks. We have our one and only Katie Parker, local foods and small farms educator in Quincy, Illinois, or Adams County, I should say. We learned last show, Katie is, uh, she she lives in Adams County, works in Quincy, but she may not live in Quincy. So, Katie, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. And we also have Ken Johnson, horticulture educator, also with U of I Extension. Ken, I know where he lives, Jacksonville, Illinois. Folks, we can track him down if we need to. So, hello, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. It's nice and warm here if it isn't where you're at. Yeah, it actually feels like summer right now, and the grass is uh, is no longer as green as it used to be. Yeah, we had to go out and water pots this morning because things were wilting and getting to the point of dying, I think. so. Well, if only they could just hold on a little bit longer, because it, it seems when I look at the weather, there's always rain forecasted. I think probably for the last three or four days, no rain has fallen, at least in my area. Even though it was forecasted? Exactly. I know. <laughs> forecasted, but it never showed up. It was supposed to be here. Never showed up. But not everyone has been as, uh, I don't know, lucky, unlucky, however you view it not raining where you're at. Uh, some folks have actually had a ton of rain uh, these last few days. I noticed uh, some of our colleagues down in southern Illinois posting pictures of backyards totally flooded in their neck of the woods. That was pretty incredible to see. So, yeah, I think it was kind of St. Louis area from the stuff I saw. So here in Jacksonville, we must have just missed it. I also saw Iowa got quite a bit of rain, too, and they have a lot of flat corn. So luckily we didn't get that. Yep. Uh, now is the, the key point, and I, I believe in, in, in corn, the growth cycle. Is that right, Katie, where, you know, a strong wind comes through, it, it would just lay it down. Right. Uh, so it'll knock it over. And then if it snaps the stalk, you're pretty much done. But yeah, it'll be interesting to mm -hmm. see if it stands back up or what happens. Well, hopefully they will, the corn will do what corn does very often and stand back up. But folks, we are talking about rain and weather and all kinds of wild and wacky things. We're going to be talking about sustainable landscaping and how do we deal uh, in this, this, this new environment that in which we live. And we have a special guest with us today, our very own Eliana Brown. Uh, Eliana is a specialist on campus here at U of I. Hello, Eliana. Hello, and thanks so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. Well, we are happy to have you, Eliana. Would you uh, mind telling the folks uh, what exactly uh, your title is and, and what do you do on campus? Yes, I'd be glad to. I'm a water quality specialist, and I work on campus doing the facilitation and coordination of the Illinois Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy. I also direct the Red Oak Rain Garden, which is a large 10,000 square foot rain garden on uh, the campus of the University of Illinois. So the nutrient reduction, that, okay, we're not talking food nutrients, right? We're talking soil nutrients. That's a great question. Yeah, so what we're really talking about is is water quality. And um, this relates 
to the dead zone that's in the Gulf of Mexico and the 12 states that drain into the Mississippi River Basin have been tasked to come up with strategies to reduce the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus that goes to the Gulf of Mexico to reduce that by 45%. So I work with uh, organizations all over the state in the fields of agriculture and uh, wastewater treatment, and also with stormwater, which uh, then the stormwater aspect of the nutrient reduction strategy is what relates to um, sustainable landscaping practices. So rain gardens, for example, and other kinds of green infrastructure are great ways of uh, keeping the nutrients on the land, keeping the, um, having the, the rainfall stay where the rainfall drops so that we uh, don't inundate our creeks and rivers and cause water quality problems downstream. Well, so this is to say that the, 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 the things that we do on the land have, have an impact on what happens in downstream water quality uh, because of of uh, to what you were all just talking about, rain and um, and uh, uh, rainwater, stormwater runoff. Uh, so these are um, so it's really important for people to understand even uh, even their own home landscape uh, as a, a part of all the home landscape say that's coming from their own town have a um, an impact on their uh, local drinking water source. I mean, these are huge issues that we're talking about with uh, the dead zone in the Gulf, drinking water, um, you know, the, the basics for, for life, for not only humans, but lots of other living organisms on our planet. And yeah, so Eliana, you're working on these, these systems and incorporating sustainability and, uh, uh, you know, these techniques of green infrastructure to save the world, essentially. That's, that's pretty incredible. Well, you know, um, at the very least to um, to do our part in the state of Illinois to um, help out the Gulf and, and also for our local water quality is, is uh, all of the things that we're doing, you know, you think globally, act uh, locally, uh, really pertain here. And I always like to say that um, what has really kept my interest in this field is that all of these things that have to do with the landscape, that these... Um, these practices can be done really artfully and beautifully. And uh, they can be things that are interesting for home gardeners to do uh, to enhance their own landscape. And um, not only, so it's, it's not only things that are good for our planet, but um, they can be enjoyable for, um, for ourselves and our families and our neighbors uh, to create some, some beauty that is um, helpful. Eliana, I think you're describing things that are really like making an impact with, with folks. So let's say someone's listening to this and they, they, they like this, they want to get involved. Why did you choose this? What brought you down this pathway to the career you're in? Was it, was it just born within you as a child or did you discover this? So tell me a little bit about your career path. I was not one of the kids that knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. 
I will say that um, when I was a preschooler, I did go on a, um, I went to a great preschool that included lots of field trips. And I went on a, a creek walk that was given by a, a local lady who happened to be very knowledgeable about natural resources. And she was also an Art Institute trained painter. She knew the name of every native plant. And I was so bowed over, bowed over and um, inspired by her. I just gained this deep appreciation of water quality. I did study civil and environmental engineering uh, in order to uh, learn how to improve water quality. Um, but I'd say that fate seemed to lead me back to these um, artistically arranged native plants uh, when I learned about rain gardens. And I was well into my career. I was a um, Illinois EPA field engineer when I learned about rain gardens. And that just opened up a whole other world for me of learning that you could, as I was just talking about, the, the things that you do on the land uh, and could be something that could have this large impact and, uh, and improve the environment. So uh, I started um, working for the University of Illinois and was the stormwater coordinator for the university. And then uh, a position came open in Extension. And I was so excited to join Extension five years ago because I was able to have uh, not only an impact on what was happening in, uh, in my town, but with the Extension Network be able to work with folks such as yourselves that are all over the state and uh, to teach the residents of the state of Illinois how to do these sustainable landscaping practices. All right. So one of the things I think when we, we talk about sustainable landscaping is a lot of people don't necessarily know what that is. So could you answer kind of what exactly are we talking about when we talk about sustainable landscaping? Um, and you've kind of done that already, as well as maybe some examples of what um, sustainable landscaping would be? Well, the way I think about it is that sustainable landscaping takes into account garden inputs, such as fertilizer, water, pesticides, uh, and aims to, to use those wisely and work with nature. It oftentimes considers eco-services and multifunctionality so that it's beyond uh, aesthetics, although aesthetics can be very much included in the functionality of a landscape, but it also considers what is beneficial to pollinators. Uh, it can, um, a really good example of that would be uh, a rain garden. So the eco-services and multifunctionality that are uh, in a rain garden is that it is utilizing the, say the water that's coming off of the downspout. So that water is uh, being used where it falls. Uh, if that rain garden has native plants that uh, have blooms that feed the pollinators, then that's a, another um, functionality of that landscape. And then thirdly, again, the aesthetics. Uh, rain gardens can be very beautiful. And so they can provide that, um, that, that pleasing look and enhancement of uh, value to um, your own property. Now, as a new homeowner, where would I start um, to make my landscape more sustainable? 
That's a great question, Katie. Uh, so as a new homeowner, I recommend that you do an inventory of what you have. Learn what is invasive uh, so you know that to, to pull, know what you want to pull, know what you want to keep. Uh, some landscapes may already have uh, native plants and, it, and it's okay if they don't. Um, these always can be added into an existing landscape. It's actually what I did at my own place. My place had my place's original owner was a, a professional landscaper and there were some great bones here and really nothing that was native. Um, and so I have uh, kept the good bones and planted a lot of native plants alongside them and they work well, very well with one another. I recommend that a new homeowner looks to see what the water flows onto the land, knowing where the downspouts are, uh, knowing where the um, air conditioner condensate comes out. Uh, and then educating yourself on how to utilize the water rather than getting rid of it all into the storm drain. A new owner may want to uh, consider installing um, composting if they don't have that already to build up the soil. A soil test can be very helpful to understand what is and what isn't needed on a property. So you don't just add something blindly. You have some um, reason to add those inputs that we're talking about. Uh, and then lastly, I recommend uh, cutting the lawn at a three inch height. And that is what's called for by the um, Illinois Indiana Sea Grants Lawn to Lake program. And that's a really good height that helps to establish a, a good root zone uh, so that the grass itself um, can be healthy, which helps to um, keep out the weeds and again, minimizes those inputs. That's just a few things. That, that would be like, you know, year one, maybe. <laughs> year one. Yes, I like that. But it's never done, right, Eliana? That, it's that... so never done. Oh. Um, it's so never done. I, as I mentioned, I was trained as a civil and environmental engineer. This this is uh, um, not, these kinds of sustainable practices were not something that I learned from my traditional college education. Uh, I have become a certified master gardener and um, have done post-education in order to learn about these things. But when I first bought my house 20 years ago, I didn't know how to do these things. So my own landscape has really grown um, along with my knowledge base. And I would expect that that's a pretty natural thing or a pretty typical thing for people that um, as they learn more, as you as you learn more, you can you can do more, and so that continual learning and um, working with the uh, the extension network and watching the webinars can really up your game, so you can up the game of your own landscape. And Eliana, I mean, you work on the the small scale from you know a backyard and all the way up to, you know, sounds like regional scale. Um, there, there's questions that kind of come in from all over the place in extension. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm working with in Macomb is there's a local park and they have huge stormwater issues. Uh, they, 
they heard about green infrastructure and they want to know more and they're talking about wetlands and, and drainage ways and you know from a, a large scale is it the same process as the small scale are we going to be doing inventories and similar things what what would you recommend in this case yeah that's a great question so there are some similarities but when you when you're scaling up to a large professional project that is when you would want to ensure that uh, professionals are are brought in so with um, a local park working on installing a wetland they would uh, need to ensure that um, the engineering is up to date, a site survey is up to date, so they really know how the water is flowing on the property and, and working with an engineering firm to make sure or see if there's any sort of drainage that would need to be changed. Uh, they also could um, work with a um, a firm that is knowledgeable uh, about native plant vegetation uh, and and wetlands to um, for the design of the wetland to make sure that um, the correct s uh, species are would be seeded in the wetland project uh, and um, with a with a local park because you know I've I've been trained on the extension way. I I also think it's really important for um, the public to be included in on uh, on the planning process. So um, the neighbors that live nearby the park uh, to um, have a facilitated process where they can weigh in on um, the kinds of um, amenities that the wetland would provide and the, the 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 overall look of it there are some wetlands uh that have been done in the in the public um well with public parks for that that have um walking trails around it so having that multifunctionality that i talked about a little bit earlier can be uh incorporated in a local park is such a um a great way of doing that because they're already um, knowledgeable about trails and, and what needs to go into that with the public. Chris, please, please keep, in, keep me on the loop on this project because I am always looking for um, good green infrastructure projects throughout the state and this sounds like this could be a really good one. Oh, I definitely will. And uh, I will just say, I, I name drop the heck out of you on this one. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one other thing. And I'm not sure when this podcast will be airing, but there is a um, state of Illinois grant that is um, available now. I, I believe the closing date on that is August 21st, and that is the Green Infrastructure Grant Opportunities. And we can put a, a link to to that in, uh, in your show notes. But that's a great way of funding it. They have... Um, the state of Illinois is investing $5 million this year in green infrastructure projects. So something on this scale would be uh, the scale that um, that would be applicable for that grant. Thank you so much, Eliana. Uh, that was a lot of great information. I, I guess I was curious when you were talking about, you know, going from, from growing up and, um, you know, a lot of the people who inspired you to then going to, to school and, and, and engineering and then discovering you know, the, the beauty that can be green infrastructure and stormwater management. So I, in my head, I'm wondering, 
do, are you still, you know, do you like the right brain side where it's a lot of that beauty? Are you still getting that engineering, that left side, that analytical side? Do, do both of those play uh, when it when you're able to do your work? That's a great question. And I would say that uh, I have a lot of right brain activities and a lot of left brain activities that happen uh, with green infrastructure. And that I think is one of the things that really interests me in it is that it is a very multidisciplinary. So um, with the campus project that I mentioned, the Red Oak Rain Garden, um, I was just emailing um, one of our soil scientists to find out um, what parameters we should be testing for if we're wanting to show any of the differences over time of what happens um, to soil health when you have native plants. So I'm not sure which side of the brain that one falls under, but uh, there's that. And then at the, the next email I might have would be in um, talking with a, a ceramics instructor. Um, we have worked with uh, this instructor last year. Uh, her students created 12 uh, mosaics uh, of flora and fauna that would either be in the rain garden or would benefit from the rain garden. And um, those are being installed uh, at, at the garden as we speak. We're in the process of doing that. But um, there's just um, such wonderful ways of incorporating art into these kinds of projects. So I, I get to have a, a little bit of both and the best of both worlds. So I'm really lucky. I, I really I I. I, I love my job. I, I think, and I'm right there with you, Eliana. I feel like I sit at the intersection of art and science. So I love spreadsheets. They can be a thing of beauty. <laughs> um, but also being able to go outside and look at the, um, you know, some people might call them the imperfections, perfections, however you want to see it, but just looking at nature and how it works. There's beauty in it. There's beauty in the ways that we can uh, kind of create and manipulate things. So, ah, my goodness. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Oh, yeah, it's it, it's such a, a rich field, I think. And, um, you know, not everyone is 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 right there with this. So you may have someone that is only interested in the beauty. And that's great. That's one of the reasons why we ensure that it's there. So we in communicating about sustainable landscapes, we want to be able to have something that's beautiful so that we can capture the folks that are a little more right brained. And then at the same time, I need to have those metrics and the spreadsheets and the numbers for my numbers people because I love them too. And I want to be able to show that we are capturing this number of gallons and uh, keeping um, this amount out of the storm sewer and helping this number of, uh, of, of birds and um and other wildlife by having um, having the native plants. So, yeah, it's it's all good. Good old hard data, love it. So, you know, we have uh, folks that submit questions into the the show. They have both left right brains, all the brains, some of the brains we don't know, um, <laughs> but they have some wonderful questions. So we have some great listeners out there. Um, so let's let's dive into some of these questions, and uh, we'll we'll start with the first one here, and this is from Facebook. 
And I think this is a topic uh, that Katie could could address here. Um, she uh, so and this person from Facebook, they would love to learn what could be used besides fencing to keep rabbits out of their landscaping and garden. Oh, so they're looking for maybe some creative things. Yeah. Um, so they want to know: Does the stinky stuff work? I'm guessing a repellent. Um, or, you know, would planting a row of asters, which this person loves, uh, be enough to keep the bunny rabbits away? Katie, are, what can we do besides using stinky stuff? Is that all we have? Yeah, so there are some other options other than the repellents or stinky stuff. Um, one thing that I did find in it is pretty, uh, like, once you say it, it makes sense. So we often see rabbits... Um, sniffing or moving their nose um, so those repellents and things uh, other concoctions could possibly be used to deter rabbits from your yard um, some of the concoctions included using like chili powder cayenne pepper garlic a lot of the repellents that you can buy from the store already have those um, different products in the repellent so it might be something where you can make your own repellent and try it out uh, one that I read was interesting was blood meal uh, as when the rabbits smell the blood or the blood scent uh, I guess not so much from the blood meal but in the uh, repellents they often include blood uh, and so that uh, indicates to them that predators around and that they should leave the area I also found ultrasonic animal repellers are an option. However, it only works on a 30-foot radius, uh, so it's a high-pitched noise that we as humans can't hear. Uh, a lot of times you see these used for, like, training pets, uh, so that's an option, but it would only cover a smaller area. Individual plant coverings can help protect your plants, so rather than having a fence, uh, you could use like chicken wire on the on the plant itself to help keep the rabbits from bothering the plants. Uh, this could also act as like a structure to help support the plant. Um, so that's a, a good option to look into. Another thing was planting flowers that rabbits won't eat. Uh, so like you said, you enjoy aster, which was one that they don't like. So that could potentially be something that would work. They also don't like marigolds, stranium, salvia, snapdragons, sunflowers. Most of these are all annuals. Uh, so it's not like a, a long-term control. There's also the option of creating an environment that the animal doesn't like. Uh, so if you have brush pile laying around or any leaves, um, excessive leaves laying around, it might be a good idea to remove those and that creates less of an attractive environment. Uh, you can also fill in burrows if you find any uh, and just remove the possibility of them creating their home there. Uh, but my favorite option was pets. So I think of any time we let our dog out that's like the first thing that she goes after are the rabbits. Um, so if you don't have pets currently, uh, they could be a, a good option to help ward off any bunnies in your yard. I call my dog a biological control for rabbits. 
Yeah, I mean, it's cost-effective. You already have it, so uh, it's he's helping you. Yeah, our dog likes to chase squirrels and rabbits, but unfortunately, as soon as, as, soon as she goes back inside, the uh, they come back. So she hasn't struck enough fear into him to keep him away long term. With a name like Buttercup, how how could those animals be afraid? <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Wasn't there like Buttercup and Thumper and Bambi? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> She's just a large rabbit, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> she does like to dig. <laughs> All right, so our next question comes from McDonough County. Um, and they, this person wants to know, how do you know how big uh, to make a rain garden? That's a great question. So there's a, a little bit of math and measuring that is involved if you want to um, know how big to make this rain garden. So it is a function of how large a drainage area that you are collecting that goes into the rain garden. So that's going to tell you how much water that you have going in. But you also, you need to do an interim test. You need to know how much water your soil can infiltrate because that's going to determine the depth of your rain garden. So you have, do you need to know how deep the rain garden it can be and you wouldn't want it to be any more than a foot so they are typically six inches to 12 inches and then once you know how much um, of the the say the roof size that you are putting into the rain garden there's just a simple calculation that you do and um, we, I can provide a link to a really great resource that walks you through doing this. We, I believe that can be added to the show notes. Certainly. Yes, yes we can do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, in hopefully next year, once the um, educators such as yourselves are trained on the rainscaping program, there is a section of the rainscaping program. And again, we hope to roll that out hopefully spring of 2021 if a uh, um, you know, pandemic al allows us to. There is a section of the rainscaping program that is uh, a, a devoted to siting and sizing the rain garden that will walk you through that as part of the course and teaches you how to, to do the infiltration test. But, um, for the time being, I'll give you that resource and also uh, a bonus video on how you do your uh, percolation test. So we have another question from Facebook in Champaign County. And these people want to control weeds sustainably. What is the best way to do that? Well, there are a number of ways of doing it. Uh, one thing that I have done uh, in my rock drive is use that formula, and many of you probably have heard of it, which is, uh, a, I believe it's dish soap and salt um, that's just sprayed onto the weeds. Uh, I have not used a garden torch, but um, that may be my, my next method that I would use. It is my understanding that the uh, Valuri Garden in Chicago um, uh, uses a garden torch on, um, on their walkways, which are a rock of some sort. That's a second way of doing it. A 
third way, um, no one probably wants to hear this, but that's what the one that I use the most and the one that we use at the Red Oak Rain Garden is weeding. We do a lot of weeding um, uh, at the Red Oak Rain Garden and certainly I do at my house. In order to minimize weeding, uh, we of course have laid down mulch and that does help. Um, but there also is a method of planning out a sustainable landscape that would be establishing a ground cover a, a green to, to serve as a green mulch. And that is uh, one of the things that we have used there on the, the campus garden. That's uh, not a spray, but more of a uh, solution that would need to be in the planning stage. Um, I may throw this question back to uh, to you all. I am not sure if any of you have used the um, corn gluten pre-emergent on lawns. That's one thing that I'm going to be trying out uh, on my own property. Uh, have any of you used that? So that's a, a topic. Actually, my, my predecessor in Knox County, his name was Chris Hilgert. He did a... I think he did a literature review of the research on that. Uh, what he found out, it, it was pretty interesting. So yes, uh, corn gluten meal, it acts as a, a pre-emergent. So what it does is as the seed germinates, the corn gluten meal acts as a desiccant, which means it, it, it removes or it pulls water out of that seedling. So essentially it, it dries up. What he found though, is that actually you have to apply uh, what was it? I think uh, it was like some, it was double the recommended rate that extension uh, recommends during, you know, any one application. So usually extension, we recommend about one pound of nitrogen per thousand square foot. In order for corn gluten meal to remain effective, you have to do two pounds uh, or you have to do enough that would it be applying two pounds of nitrogen per square foot, which is more nitrogen than the lawn can use at that moment. And so then that would be considered excessive. It, it would just leach away, drain off. And so the other thing I noticed with the research is that at, since it acts as a desiccant, as a drying agent, if, if you get a lot of rain after that, it, there is a lower and lower rate of effectiveness because the plant is able, able to overcome that, that desiccation and just, just establish itself. So, but I used corn gluten meal, and I will say, as a nitrogen source, works wonderfully. And in fact, I you know it, it works as a, a very good for me as a nitrogen source. I didn't use it as the pre-emergent. So, um, but I think the research is is, is ever evolving on that product. Oh, thank you. But if more, if um, a lot of it is used, it can run off as nitrogen, which wouldn't be very good for our nutrient reduction efforts. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But yeah, if you still apply corn gluten meal to give it a pound of nitrogen per thousand square foot, it works It works wonderfully. So I, I mean, I have really good success with that. Uh, but in terms of its pre-emergent qualities, yeah, I... It, at least based on what uh, Chris uh, Hilgert had had written, and that was that was about five or six years ago, I think. And I will I'll also add too. We ha actually the good growing team. We have a, we have a, like a joint email, and we got one this morning. Someone asking for how to control uh, the common violet, and you know our colleague Andrew sent him you know the the steps to take. Uh, but then because I'm kind of a fan of violet. Uh, 
I actually kind of sent, I sent an old blog post that I did. Uh, so one of my tips I give is maybe changing your perspective. Uh, is, is it really a weed? You know, there's a lot of things that we classify as weeds, but they're not an invasive species. They're not, you know, the worst thing in the world. Uh, they might be a native species. They might be a larval food source, which common blue violet is. So change your perspective. Maybe it's not necessary to control it. I like that perspective and that's uh, integrated pest management, learning to have some tolerance. I, I think I would also add, uh, I um, a lot of people ask me what they should, or how to get grass to grow under a tree. And oftentimes there's frequently water, maybe standing water periodically in those areas. And um, so they, don't, their grass can't grow when they get a lot of creeping Charlie that can grow. Um, I'm not going to come down on the side of creeping Charlie. <laughs> I would <laughs> probably recommend pulling that out, but then establishing that a, a, a green mulch of, say, some kind of a sedge that could work with uh, a shady, periodically wet area. And that that sedge may have uh, some success in um, battling out the creeping Charlie and keeping it out of there. So pick something, I guess, that could um, is tougher than the plant you don't like. Uh, we have had a lot of success with the sedges that are in the Red Oak Rain Garden, and it has been um, a very challenging year for uh, um weeding in the red oak rain garden this is the first year of the the garden it was planted last fall and first years are typically the critical year for gardens as the plants are really still establishing themselves and working on their roots and the weeds can really flourish so typically you should have uh, more care given by volunteers uh, to pull the weeds um, of course it's been a a challenging year to have volunteers. So um, our um, planting plan of uh, one foot centers for our sedges, which is pretty packed in there, uh, was really put to the test. And um, I'm not gonna say that the garden is weed free right now, but uh, it has really surpassed my expectations on um, the ability for those sedges to establish themselves pretty quickly and pretty in, in a thick way that um, is shading out uh, any of the competing plants that we don't want. Well, Eliana, our, our next question comes from Kendall County up in the, the northeastern part of the state. And they, they have a question about an HOA, which is kind of like inescapable, like death and taxes for some people. So um, the, in terms of their HOA, they're, uh, they're talking about adopting sustainable landscape practices. Well, that's pretty good. That's, that's good to hear. Um, so these people want to know what resources are out there to, to get them started in that direction. Well, there are certainly a lot of resources that are available from Extension, and we can post some of them on the show notes. Uh, there are two that my team has been involved with, and I should say that um, my team is um, Lane Kanoki, who's trained as a landscape architect, and Kate Gardner, who is a um, communications associate. And they are uh, really wonderful uh, to work with to, to put together some resources that I think are helpful for um, 
for homeowners and hopefully for homeowner associations. So one of them is um, a, a video series called Stormwater at Home. Um, and it's a six part series that teaches people um, uh, about various uh, residential scale stormwater practices. So homeowner association may want to learn about certain things that um, their residents may may want to do uh, on their homes and um, hopefully the association will allow that to, to happen because it's, it's good for everybody. We also have a series of brochures that provide some um, very aesthetically pleasing planting plans that um, a homeowner association can um, provide as a resource for their residents. Um, we are creating more of them um, as we go. And many of these are based on our experience of working at the, the Red Oak Rain Garden. The garden itself has uh, a, um, a nice website, which includes a, a pretty detailed blog of um, how we built that rain garden and some of the things that went into that. Um, we are um, working on creating some fact sheets that will be helpful for homeowners that can go alongside that information. Um, but yeah, we'll, I, can, I can give you several references and I, I think the thing that a homeowners association would really um, need to be cognizant of is uh, having enough latitude with what they allow um, to have native plants be part of, uh, of a landscape. Um, this is oftentimes a, an issue uh, with municipalities and in, in municipal code, sometimes the code needs to change a little bit so that it can adapt to having sustainable landscapes and balancing that with um, safety needs. That's wonderful. Yep. As, as someone who's lived with uh, my first HOA, very hands-on, and now the one we're in now, very hands-off. It's wonderful. Um, but, you know, the hands-on one, I, I, I would just, from my experience also, I'd recommend reaching out to experts in a field, like a certified arborist, and, and developing like a tree plan or a long-range plan. Uh, just because, you know, a mature tree, not only does it add value to the properties in the in the HOA, but it also is a wonderful stormwater tool for helping to slow down rainfall and absorb some of that rainfall. So a healthy tree, it's a good thing to have. Agreed. They soak up a lot of rain. One other thing that a homeowner association or even a municipality uh, might want to keep in mind is um, in the fall, the leaves that are in the street um, do, shouldn't stay there. Uh, so a, a, a good street sweeping program and um, communicating with your residents to tell them that uh, not to rake the leaves into the street, which I understand is common practice in some places. It, it's not where I live, but in, in some towns it is. So um, that's really important to prevent uh, the rainwater that um, 
is on top of the leaves can uh, leach through and it leaches the phosphorus out of the leaves and it goes into the storm drain and into our receiving streams. And the, uh, the USGS did a study a few years ago that found that that was actually the number one cause of phosphorus from our urban areas. So that, um, that's a, a, a really great way to um, make sure or to, to cut down and reduce the amount of phosphorus that's, that's lost on, into the receiving streams. So, and I would encourage people to, to try to keep their leaves on their property. They make excellent mulch and you know, you're talking about overwintering habitat for um, insects and pollinators and stuff. A lot of times you'll overwinter in that, that leaf layer, that leaf mulch. So just another reason to try to try to keep that around. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I generally keep the leaves uh, in my backyard down and um, mulch over it, you know, do use a mulching mower over it. Uh, in the front, I'll sometimes collect those and just add that to the compost, but I have a lot of trees on my property, so um, there seems to be plenty of leaves that are um, there for the overwintering pollinators. Yeah, I usually keep mine kind of around the perimeter of our backyard. We have more of our our ornamental beds and then rake up everything in the yard and then we have a, a chipper shredder so i shred all those and store those in the garage over the winter and then use those as mulch in the vegetable garden and stuff um, in the spring i may need to add your advice ask your advice for a chipper shredder that sounds like yeah. a really so, great technique so so mine is a, a 20 year old <laughs> craftsman chipper shredder that i borrowed from my parents and i have not given back so <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> they have since got a new one, so they don't need it back. Yeah, Ken, once I heard you say you use a chipper shredder, I, I looked it up immediately, and I, I want one now. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, speaking of storm water, a storm rolled through, knocked my power out, so we're going to close this show out over my cell phone here. Um, but everybody else hopefully is still connected. So I want to thank Eliana Brown for being on the show today. We learned so much to help us get on the way to having more sustainable landscapes. So Eliana, we, we thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. This is a, a, a great show. Yeah. And we'd love to have you back on for sustainable landscaping part two. And whenever that, that comes up, maybe one day we'll be able to meet in person. That'd be wonderful. That would be wonderful. And yeah, I, I'd be honored to come back. Thank you for inviting me. Certainly, and Ken and Katie, as always, thank you for spending a week with us and sharing your knowledge and expertise. Thank you, Chris. Thank you again, Eliana, for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris and Eliana. All right, folks. And, of course, as always, thank you for doing what you do best, listeners, and that would be listening. Keep on growing.